Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Michelle Hennessy, and this week, what will Putin's next steps be in his invasion of Ukraine? In a new wave of deadly strikes, Russia's forces have been hitting energy and other key infrastructure targets across Ukraine, including the country's capital, Kyiv. Cities that were targeted in recent days have experienced widespread blackouts and problems with water supplies. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky has continued his plea to the international community for advanced weaponry to combat future missile attacks. And among those leaders, there are growing concerns about Russian President Vladimir Putin's tactics. He recently announced conscription to the army in Russia to bulk up ground forces in Ukraine. He's been accused of sabotaging the Nord Stream gas line pipelines, putting Europe's supply under further pressure. And in the background, there is always this threat of an escalation to some kind of nuclear attack. So what do Russia's recent actions in this conflict tell us about Putin's strategy? And how worried should we be about this nuclear threat? Returning to the podcast to help explain the situation is independent senator and retired army officer Tom Clonan. Tom, you're very welcome. Hi, Michelle. How are you? Now, I want to start with the attack on the Kerch Bridge, which joins Russia and Crimea. Can you talk about what happened there? It wasn't an easy target to hit, right? The Ukrainian military and President Zelensky's people have been targeting bridges from the very outset of this conflict. And uh, people may recall in the battle around Kherson, the Ukrainians took out the Kakhovka Bridge, the Antonovsky Bridge, to try and drive Russian forces across the Dnieper River, get them back uh, towards the east. And the bridges, major rail and motorway junctions, these are the arteries that supply Putin's forces in Ukraine. So the attack on the bridge at Herch is, you know, was a real propaganda victory. They hit it on Putin's 70th birthday. This was a kind of a prestige uh, infrastructure project for Vladimir Putin. He was filmed driving a truck across it. And for that bridge to be partially destroyed on his birthday sends a real message. But it also will have worried the Russians because it happened so far to the rear as they would see it. And essentially, there are a number of theories. Some people have suggested it might have been a, a submersible mini submarine, a kind of a remotely operated vehicle. But I think that's unlikely in that they would have had to travel about 600 miles. And the chances of that not being detected by the Black Sea fleet are slim. Others suggest a missile. I don't think so. The HIMARS, that's the high mobility artillery rocket systems that the Ukrainians have from the United States, wouldn't quite have that range. So I think the most likely explanation, and based on the blast patterns and the pictures I've seen, is uh, probably a, a really, really big truck bomb. It, it changes the narrative for Putin somewhat because a story like that can't be suppressed on Russian media. So uh, I think these kind of attacks put Putin under a lot of political pressure, as well as the you know, the pressure that it puts on their logistics efforts on the ground in Ukraine. So was the attack then on Kyiv city centre and, and the attacks we've seen in other cities after that over the course of this week, is that a direct retaliation for that bridge attack, do you think? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you if you look at P- Putin's behaviour and the behaviour of the Kremlin during this conflict, a couple of weeks ago, we were, you know, talking about the destruction of towns like Mariupol, uh, the destruction of towns like Lyman and Izium by short-range Russian artillery. So Russians were on the ground at the edges of those cities, destroying them systematically. But now Russia is being driven back. They're being driven back towards the Russian border in many key areas. Their troops 
have suffered really high levels of casualties, deaths and injuries. So what Putin has resorted to now is a kind of a punitive response. So he's firing long range missiles, many of them from inside Russia itself at civilian targets in cities throughout uh, Ukraine, places like, you know, Kharkiv, Kiev, Lviv, even over in the West. It's only a matter of time before he targets uh, cities like uh, Odessa. And, you know, from a kind of a strategic position, if you're a country that's targeting civilians at rush hour in their cars, that's, you're not a regime that's winning a war. Basically, he's trying to terrorise the Ukrainian people because he cannot deal with the Ukrainian military on the ground. He can't change the facts on the ground tactically. So strategically now he has resorted to this uh, strategy of trying to uh, terrorise the civilian population. And he has appointed um, a guy called General Sergei Surovikin, who's known in Russia, his nickname is General Armageddon, uh, because he was the, the Russian general in, in charge of uh, Russian operations in Syria, where they destroyed Syrian cities and towns uh, through the use of, you know, helicopter gunship attacks, airstrikes and, and missile attacks. So it's, it's not looking good for Putin if, if the committing of war crimes is his only response to Ukraine's tactical uh, achievements on the ground. What does it mean then that that Colonel General uh, Sorovkin is involved? What does that say about uh, Putin's mindset, uh, about how he thinks things are going? So Putin has been purging his generals and his behaviour from the very start has been has been puzzling. The European Union miscalculated, didn't really believe he was going to invade. And when I was writing for the journal back in February, I, I really wasn't sure because of the numbers were so small. You know, 150, 160,000 troops to invade a country of 40 million people. It just seemed like a huge overreach. And then when he did cross the border, he had this like really reckless uh, strategy of attacking Kiev on one axis of advance and then two separate axes of advance from Russia proper uh, into Donbass and then another from the Crimean Peninsula. Like he divided up an already small force. So what it tells me is that he's not listening to his generals. There's some suggestion that during COVID he may have become a little more isolated than he normally is, but he's certainly not getting constructive or critical feedback from the people around him. So the purging of generals is further evidence of that. You know, he's, he's sacking people one after the other and he's appointed this guy, you know, Surovikin. And people are kind of going, oh, well, he's the architect of their great strategy in Syria. The Russians didn't fight in Syria. I think, you know, most international military analysts that I listen to seem to miss that point. The, it was the Syrian Arab National Army, Sana. It was Assad's troops that fought on the ground. All the Russians did in Syria, in, in, for the most part, now there were some exceptions, but for the most part, they just provided air support and bombing cities from, you know, high altitude using the assistance of the Iranians and getting there through their airspace. So Surov Ikin doesn't have any sort of major track record as a guy who can turn things around on the ground with infantry, armor, artillery, and, and to get that all arms combined operations that's necessary to, to take on the Ukrainians. So I think it's, he is, you know, given another couple of weeks and General Armageddon will be, he'll be getting his P-45 as well. And again, I, I think a lot of this speaks to 
a growing desperation on Putin's part because the optics are not looking good. Up until now, since since February, right up until uh, September, September the 4th, when the Ukrainians had their massive breakthrough at, at Kharkiv, Russian media have been able to present the war in Ukraine as a kind of a good news story. Everything's going well. We're liberating Donbass. It's not going as quickly as we would like, but we're pushing the fascists, as they would call it. We're pushing them back. But that breakthrough and the destruction of things like the Kersh Bridge show, you know, that can't be hidden on Russian media. So it's no longer a good news story. The other thing that's happened is that up until now, the war in Ukraine for Russians has been something that is it's it's just that it's something on the TV. It doesn't affect their everyday lives. The troops that have been fighting there are from the republics in, in the Caucasus. They're, you know, some of the poorest people in the Russian Federation. But with the partial mobilization of 300,000 troops, that conflict is now off Russian TV and in people's lives. So it's now a bad news story that's impacting people in Russia every day. So Putin despite all of his posturing and the propaganda and the misinformation and the, you know, the muscle flexing and these missile strikes, uh, he's under severe pressure. And you touched on this earlier, the Ukrainian forces have had a number of successes in recent weeks and they are managing to push back the ground troops, the Russian ground troops in a number of areas. So what are the weaknesses on the ground on the Russian side? What are they doing wrong? Basically, they're unable to manoeuvre. And that that is in, in the simplest terms, they're unable to get the right stuff in the right place at the right time to fight. They also seem to be unable to respond to local attacks. So uh, von Clausewitz said, you know, no, no plan survives contact with the enemy. So all, all military commanders are trained to react and to take the initiative and to keep their momentum going no matter what happens. But the Russians seem to have a very rigid hierarchical command structure uh, local commanders don't seem to be able to respond to attacks from Ukrainian forces. Uh, they can't counterattack or, or even do a fighting withdrawal. It seems to be the case when they come into contact with Ukrainian forces in any strength, they run. And, and we can see that because of the offensive around Kharkiv. Um, the Ukrainians put 6,000 troops east towards the, towards the Russian border under the Russians' noses. I mean, that's right on the border, be constant overflights by Russian aircraft. They put 6,000 troops uh, into a, a really, really fast, rapid-moving advance to take the town of Izium. And the Russians, th there was no counterattack. There was no fighting withdrawal. They literally ran for the river Oskil, which is a north-south feature just, just short of the Russian border. And Russian commanders had to stop them there. And, and form what's called a scratch defence, try to get a line of, you know, to limit the exploitation of the Ukrainians. Now, the Ukrainians did all of that very, very fast, what's called um, fire and manoeuvre, you know, with the supporting arms of our artillery, of uh, armour, mounted infantry and air defence. So to support 6,000 troops, you would have had maybe 20 or 30,000 uh, in the logistics and rear and supporting elements. They did all of that with complete surprise. That's extraordinary. But the battle around Lyman, which is going on at the moment where the Russians are in danger of being surrounded, there's no surprise in that. The, the Russians know what the Ukrainians are doing uh, and they're unable to respond. 
They're unable to meaningfully reinforce from Russia proper, hence this partial mobilization. Um, so the Russians, they've lost, you know, the, the Americans say that they've lost 60,000, 70,000 troops killed in action. That's an extraordinary figure. The Russians say they've lost 6,000 officially uh, killed in action. And I say the number is probably halfway between the two. So if the Russians have lost 30,000 killed in action, normally with attrition rates and exchange ratios, you can, you can say then that they've lost another 100,000 seriously injured, you know, polytrauma, horrific injuries. That's a really, really large number of casualties from an invading force of 150, 160,000 troops. Whereas on the on the Ukrainian side, and now they have the, you know, the wind in their sails, they, they're gaining ground. And because of Putin's disastrous announcements, he said, I'm sending 300,000 troops. Um, it's going to take the Russians months to get those guys uniformed, trained, getting them together, getting them to, trained up again on the on even the radio equipment and the call signs and the order of march and the maneuver. Basically, what he said to Ukraine is, here's your window of opportunity. I am now handing the initiative completely to you. You've got two or three months, do or die. So the, you're going to see the Ukrainians really concentrate their forces in the next number of weeks as winter comes to gain as much ground as they can in the face of Russian inertia. And, you know, firing missiles at, at cities and killing hundreds of civilians, it's horrific. And they are war crimes. But those kinds of attacks are not going to change the facts on the ground in Donbass. And if you look, Tom, at the combat styles, the two combat styles, the Ukrainian and Russian, how do they compare? Because it seems like from what you're saying that there's more creative thinking, if you want to call it that, on the Ukrainian side. So I would characterise the Ukrainian style, if you like, or battlefield art is one way of describing it as being really fluid, mobile, kinetic, words like seizing the initiative and and being really uh, mobile and flexible. Whereas the Russians, on the other hand, are very, very rigid. It's that old Soviet style, you know, we are dug in, facing west, ready to repel. These are rigid, fixed lines poorly equipped, poorly trained, poorly motivated troops. Uh, no local initiative is allowed. Um, we've had a lot of Russian generals and very senior officers up the rank of full colonel being killed in Ukraine because every decision that's made on the battlefield, which is very fast moving, um, has to be rubber stamped by a general who might be, you know, 40, 50 or even 100 kilometers back to the rear. So. The Russians are kind of arthritic, sclerotic. It, it's it's the opposite, and and it, it it is very troubling for Russia because Putin in the last twenty years has invested trillions of rubles into the Russian military to to kind of transform it from that really uh, rigid and um, fixed Soviet model to something approaching the you know the battle group system that that NATO have perfected over, over the last number of years. And I don't want to talk, I don't, I hope I don't sound like I'm, you know, some sort of a fan of, 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 of these things. I mean, this is a serious escalation in the conflict, but Russia's military has, has proven itself now not to be the Red Army that everybody had feared. If you recall at the beginning of this conflict, the Finns, the Swedes, the Lithuanians, the Latvians, the Romanians, they were worried that the Russian military might turn up on their border. But now it seems to be the case that the Russians' military is not capable of turning up on somebody's border. 
Um, they barely made it down the highway to Kiev, which is a short hop. So Putin, I think when this conflict comes to an end, and it will conclude, one of the lessons learned from this is that Putin has, has destroyed the prestige of the Russian military by, by using it in this way. He has squandered the, the prestige, the reputation, and, and the kind of the threat applied in, in the Russian military. He's destroyed them. And um, it's only a matter of time before he, he runs out of road himself politically. I want to ask you about the recent attacks on Kiev. Is Russia targeting Zelensky himself with these hits? I mean, do we even know where in the city he is? From the very start of this um, conflict, Zelensky, his cabinet, uh, his wife, his children, they were targets number one. I don't know if, if the listeners will remember when the Americans invaded Iraq, the aim was to decapitate Saddam Hussein's regime. And they had a, a set of playing cards, you know, fifth, uh, all of the key figures of the regime, Comical Ali, Saddam Hussein, his generals, his, his uh, chemical weapons experts, and they were to be either uh, captured or eliminated on, on, on being encountered. And the, Putin had similar orders for Zelensky. Zelensky, the intention was to kill him or to capture him in the, in the opening hours. And the Russians sent special forces into Kiev on that first uh, day of the invasion. They tried to take a, a, a strategically important airport in Kiev. They were repelled, but they got very, very close to Zelensky. I mean, I'm told that uh, Russian special forces, the kill team, for want of a better expression, were actually out in the courtyard engaged in a firefight. They were that close to taking out Zelensky. And that was the original concept, you know, to decapitate the regime. The Ukrainian military would collapse and Putin would roll into Donbass and install a puppet regime friendly to Moscow in Kiev. That didn't happen. But, I mean, for Putin, and I, and I, I hate using this kind of language, but an optimum outcome for him would be if he could if he could remove or eliminate Zelensky, even at this late stage, it would give him some sort of a a bounce, you know, from a propaganda perspective. But I think Putin and those who empower him in the, in, in the Kremlin, they, they've really crossed a line here, you know, because their tactics at the moment, you know, targeting civilian centres, they're, they're explicit breaches of the laws of armed conflict. There are breaches of the, of the Geneva Conventions. He's committing war crimes now. And a country that is winning doesn't commit war crimes, you know, like that. This, this is a very, it's a dangerous moment because it shows Putin, a man who, you know, as I've been trying to describe, isn't, isn't somebody who's listening to good advice. Um, so he seems to be really at a stage where you, you'd wonder what is he capable of ordering and, and what, what orders... Uh, would be carried out, you know, and I'm talking about the use of either chemical agents or or radioactive dirty bomb or the exploitation of, of one of the nuclear plants, it's like Zaporizhia or whatever, or would he even use a tactical nuclear weapon? They're things that people should, well, world leaders, I, I imagine, are, are thinking about this at the moment and, and using all of their networks to get uh, behind the scenes and all the back channels to Moscow to say, listen, the wheels are coming off this thing. We need to bring it to some sort of a uh, an acceptable conclusion. Is there still as much of a threat against Zelensky then? I mean, obviously they were very close in, in February, but is he in much danger now in Kyiv? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the attack on the Kerch Bridge shows that 
black operations or, you know, asymmetrical or, you know, hybrid operations are very much a part of this conflict. And, you know, they've been targeting critical infrastructure, power plants. They've, you know, it is alleged that Russia took out the uh, Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 gas connectors in the Baltic Sea. So everything's on the table, all means and methods. And I would say, you know, Zelensky is constantly moving. And funnily enough, um, back in March, I was at the uh, in the houses of the Oireachtas when Zelensky did his address to both the Senate and the Doyle. You know, his his address to the houses of the Oireachtas, it was not scripted. He, he just spoke directly into the camera. But I, what I saw there was a man who was under incredible pressure and stress. And he's been living that life now for the last six to seven months. He, his, his leadership has been very visible despite the threats to him. Uh, he's been, you know, very much on top of the, the messaging. But there's a huge propaganda campaign on the Ukraine side uh, throughout this conflict. I have, I have not once heard a figure for Ukrainian casualties, either deaths or injuries of, of their military. So, you know, there's a very careful packaging of Zelensky's leadership and, and the, the Ukrainian effort, which has been very, very successful. But I think when this conflict does come to a conclusion, we're going to learn, you know, we're going to find out, you know, what's actually been going on behind the scenes. And I think there's going to be a very, uh, an incredible story there about survival. And But I would say um, Zelensky, you know, he's never in the same place uh, for, for more than a certain number of hours. I'd say he's constantly on the move. And we saw the recent sham annexations of Russian occupied territories, including in the regions of Donetsk and Luhansk. What's the impact of that? And could we see more of it? Well, Essentially, what Putin has done with the, the, the sham referenda or the, the plebiscites is, is to declare parts of Donbass to be actually Russian soil. So part of the Rodina or the motherland. So what he's trying to do is say Ukraine is no longer what, what the Russians call the, uh, the near abroad. Now it is uh, Russia proper. And therefore, if Ukrainian troops or weapons supplied by the West uh, hit those targets in what is now Russia proper, then we reserve the right then to retaliate with all and every necessary means. So this is part of the escalation process. I mean, I don't, I don't think that those parts of Donbass have magically been turned into parts of Russia, but from Moscow and from Putin's perspective, it gives them the legal green light to use um, all and er any means necessary to defend the motherland. And there's an expression in Russia uh, called protozenia sledvitsia, which means to be continued or watch what happens next. And it's, it's, the, it's a threat. That's what these plebiscites are. They're a threat to the West that we will reserve what, what the Russians call the right to first use or a preemptive use of a tactical nuclear weapon to defend our homeland. And that's, that's what that was about. And does Ukraine risk losing international support if it's being seen not just to defend itself, but also to go on the offensive? I mean, we, we've seen targets in Russian occupied areas uh, or territory recognised as Russian territory. Is there that risk of losing international support by doing that? Putin has threatened not just Ukraine, but all of Europe and the West. He's been threatening to use nuclear weapons not just in Ukraine, but against, uh, you know, what he calls uh, an event not yet seen in history against European, our, our community. It's an attack on not just Europe's interests, but on Europe's values. So I would say that 
for many European leaders, there's a recognition that to prevent, to prevent the next war, which could be an apocalyptic one, to prevent that from happening, this war has to come to a conclusion that teaches Putin or whoever succeeds him that the use of force against um, the West and against European neighbours will not lead to a positive outcome for Russia. If Putin and his cronies are permitted any kind of a victory here, according to that philosophy or doctrine, um, that political sort of uh, appraisal, then it'll embolden him to, to, to do more things. You know, my, my feeling would be that he would try and take Odessa, get into Moldova, Transnistria, get right up onto the border with Poland and, and, and Romania. I mean, so how much pain can Europe take you know, we're going to have a cold winter, uh, gas supplies compromised, energy prices going through the roof, the cost of living crisis that we're also familiar with. You know, how politically, how long can European leaders maintain that support for the war in Ukraine? Uh, in the United States, uh, you know, how long will Biden's very intensive package of support withstand a possible change in the in the composition of the of the House with the Republicans set to take Congress? in in the in the next uh, set of election cycles so but they're all the variables of of the wider war but if you look at the evidence on the ground from the very very outset the support for ukraine's military has been unequivocal and it has been very public Jel, uh, stoltenberg nato's leader uh, the head of nato has said this week that if uh, russia carries out asymmetric attacks like the suspected attack on, on the German uh, rail system uh, during the week, that they will consider it a, an, an act of war and will respond in kind. They're even talking about invoking, invoking Article 5 of NATO's uh, mutual defence, that's their mutual defence clause, to come together and combine. So, you know, they're saying to Putin is, is you know, he's cornered, he's lashing out, hitting civilian targets from a great distance. Uh, but I think the resolve in the West has been has been firm. There has I haven't seen any cracks yet. I want to ask you about the nuclear option. There's been a lot of talk of this in recent weeks. How real is the nuclear threat? Okay, so Russia have said from well, sorry, Putin. I, I really can't emphasize enough this. You know, this isn't about Russia or Russians. This is about Putin and the people around him who empower him. From the very, very start, in, on the 24th and on the 28th of February, Putin explicitly stated that he was mobilising his, his missile forces, the 12th Directorate, uh, his nuclear assets, that he was mobilising them and putting them on high alert, uh, which is a, a kind of a precursor to, to using nuclear weapons. So the, the threat has been there from the very, very start, and he's repeated it throughout the conflict. Russia has about 6,000 nuclear warheads. Many of them are what we call strategic nuclear weapons. So to explain that, Hiroshima, the atomic bomb that was dropped at the end of World War II, that was a 15 kiloton device. And that killed in and around 150,000 people almost instantaneously. The strategic nuclear weapons are 800 kilotons. It's an almost unimaginable weapon. I don't think a weapon like that is being contemplated by Putin. But worryingly, the Russians have developed what they call smaller tactical low yield weapons, and they're in and around one kiloton. So they're actually, you know, less than a tenth of the size of Hiroshima or Nagasaki. And that's a weapon 
that if it was fired would destroy a town of about 10,000 people in an instant. Now, if you were to use a weapon like that, just to be clear about this, a thermonuclear weapon, even of one kiloton, on impact, that weapon would instantly obliterate and irradiate uh, an area of approximately one, one square mile. And everything within that one square mile would be instantly, you know, destroyed. Um, and within 50 seconds, that area of destruction would spread out to about a radius of 12 miles, a huge, you know, within 50 seconds, there'd be a massive electromagnetic pulse. And I don't know what impact that would have on civil aviation throughout Europe. So even though it will be a small weapon, inverted commas, in the context of the strategic or larger weapons, if Putin was to do that, and he might be tempted because he's been threatening to do it, I think that that would provoke uh, a response from the West that's hard to imagine just now. And Putin, know, Putin knows that. If you look then at what's been happening in recent weeks, what do you predict for the coming weeks? I think Ukraine will continue to, to gain ground. My guess is, based on the movement of their troops and their axes of advance, before winter comes or in the early stages of winter, I think what the Ukrainians might try to do is cut off the land corridor between Russia and the Crimean Peninsula. So they've tried to take out the bridge. Now I think they'll try to take, you know, re retake that, that strip of land around Mariupol that the Russians took in the early stages of the conflict to cut off the Crimean Peninsula. Now, that's an easy thing to say. It's a very, very ambitious target. I don't know if they could achieve it, but that's my best guess. They'll continue to do that. They've nothing to lose. They've, there's no Russian ground offensive uh, imminent. It's going to take the Russians a long time to get any mobilized troops, such as they are, to get them into Ukraine proper. Um, so they'll use that window to exploit their movement on the ground as best they can. And that would be my guess that they'll try and cut off that, that land corridor. The, the Russians will continue their um, missile attacks on Ukrainian cities. They'll also use uh, the drones that they've been buying from the Iranians. These are the Shahed or so-called kamikaze drones. And the West will start to ramp up the air defense systems that they're making available to the Ukrainians to try and intercept as many of these missiles and drones as they can. These are the, the NAMAS systems, the National Advanced air defence missile systems and uh, there's another one they're getting from from the Europeans called IRIS. So they'll, these are what they call flycatcher systems that try to stop incoming missile and drone attacks. So I would imagine that's what we're going to see next. Yeah, it's obviously so difficult to predict exactly what's ahead, but it's great to get your insights as always. Thanks so much for joining us, Tom. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thanks to everyone who listened to this episode of The Explainer. And thanks again to Tom for joining me. This will be my last episode of The Explainer and my last week with The Journal. It's been a pleasure speaking with our guests each week. And even though the aim was always to help you all better understand the big news events happening around the world, I was there learning along with you. I'm looking forward to continuing that. Now I'll just be listening from the other side. This episode was brought to you by producers Eva Barry and Nikki Ryan. If you liked what you heard and you want to support The Explainer, there are a few things you can do. You can head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to become a monthly subscriber or you could leave us a rating and a review as well if you're feeling generous wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks again for listening.